What's up, guys? I am so excited to bring you today's episode with a powerful rags to riches story with a self-made millionaire. Bedros Koulian is a mastermind entrepreneur with a savage mindset for success. He's behind multiple brands and businesses, including his own Fit Body Bootcamp. Today, we're exposing how hyper-successful people get their morning routine and habits right, how to set yourself up to win the battle of business, and the rules and rituals you need around your social media use. I hope you guys love listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. And if you do, please leave a review of our podcast. It really is the best way to support what we're doing so that we can get the show out to more people so that they can develop an unbeatable mindset for business and success. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. Beatrice Koulian, welcome back to the show. Tom, thank you for having me again. I'm stoked, man. So why is it that people that are hyper-successful are so obsessed with getting their morning routine right, and what should everybody watching this right now do to make theirs crispy? That's a really good question. I think the morning routine is something that will set anybody up for success, right? Because when you wake up, and I wake up, and the next guy wakes up, we all have about the same number of time. About the same? Actually, exactly (laughs) the same number of time. And so since we know that, that means what you do versus what I do matters. And so if I'm screen sucking, the moment I get up, I'm looking at social media, what's going on Facebook, who's talking about what on Instagram, and you're like, hey, I've got this GSD list. Uh, I call it the get shit done list. And the GSD list is you're just going to wake up and dominate your day. Like my morning routine is wake up, never hit the snooze button. We've talked about this on your show previously. Drink my 30 ounces of water because Sean Stevenson said so. And then take a shower and then end up downstairs with my protein shake and my coffee and more water and work off my GSD list. Like that sets me up to win. Checking in on social media is not part of my morning routine because all of a sudden something on social media might trigger me to feel like I'm missing out, might trigger me to feel like I should have been at an event, might trigger me to feel like a sense of guilt, a sense of shame, a sense of whatever. And any of those things, any of those feelings and emotions are not things that I would take into the battle of business. And I'm in the battle of business because when I make money, I can have a greater sense of meaning with it. And, and so I cannot take emotions and feelings and thoughts that I got from social media, especially in the morning, to the battlefield of business where I do most of my heavy work in the morning. So that morning routine sets me up to win. And as soon as I'm done with my GSD list, by about 9 a.m., like you can set your clock to me. I go right to the gym, work out, intentionally put my phone in my cubby at the gym. And, because again, I'm susceptible to looking at the screen. And if I'm doing that, all of a sudden my workout is less than stellar, which means I feel like a failure and now I'm more likely to compound failure throughout the day. So that's how I look at it. So conversely, if I slept in, hit the snooze button, didn't drink 30 ounces of water, just took a sip of water, now I'm going to be late to work. I feel rushed. The subconscious mind is telling me that I'm a loser, I'm a failure, I'm an imposter. How are you going to go lead an international franchise or a supplement company or or write another book when... You're a loser, dude, right? The subconscious mind speaks to us. That's the inner critic. And so to shut down the inner critic and give voice to the inner advocate, a strong morning routine sets you up to win the day. You win the day, you win the week, and then off you go. You've won a year and then a decade. It's so crazy to me how much that matters. Like you can get off by just a little and your efficiency starts to be off and then the day just isn't as... um, useful as it could have been and it really 
it really does start with the morning. Like getting people to understand if you get the morning right, then the rest of your day, you're going to be able to be far more productive. And when you start stacking those things, that really is the difference between somebody that accomplishes a lot and somebody that doesn't. Look, I don't want to deny that intellect plays a big role. Education plays a big role. But if you are inefficient, to your point about, okay, we all have the same number of hours, so it comes down to how are you spending your time. But there's something like, I find myself wanting to say more words because there's something ineffable that I'm not capturing yet, which is there is a really subtle difference between a high performance day and a mediocre day. And when I think about, certainly the thing that has been my superpower is I'm able to generate momentum. So I can go from standing still. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody believes in what I'm trying to do. Uh, We don't have a company incorporated, like all of that. And then, oh, you know those first, like getting the machine moving is so hard. That's what I can do. And whether that's a new project, whether that's a whole company, whatever, I can get those early things going. Every day feels like that. And on the days where I am battered and beaten psychologically, and I, what I, I call hiding in bed, and I'm hiding in bed, and you just, even if I just miss getting out of bed, because I give myself 10 minutes, if I get out of bed in 11 minutes, I'm like, oh, mm. I know where this goes. There's something I'm pushing against that is stop, either I didn't go to bed on time, I didn't sleep well, I'm stressed, whatever, but there's something going on that made getting up unusually hard that day, and then it just spirals. And so getting people to understand how important it is to do the most important things first, do them efficiently, get the psychological momentum going so that you can believe in yourself, you have that credibility, you get going, it really makes a big difference. But it's hard to explain. It is hard to explain, but sometimes you don't need an explanation. For example, if you just watch what winners do, and do what they do, odds are you will eventually have a similar outcome. Mm. Great example is, I believed, I believe you may have shared this at either Fleischmann's Elevator Nights when we all spoke there, or it might have been on when uh, you were kind enough to come and do my podcast, but you said, if I wake up within, correct me if I'm wrong, if I wake up within 20 minutes of my alarm going off, I don't go back to sleep, I just get up. I'm like, I'm adopting that, Mm. I'm adopting that. Now, if it was some crackhead who, Rob's Banks says that, I may not adopt that. But you're someone I respect, that I wanna be like and emulate. You know what, I'm gonna add that to my repertoire. Like, I don't know why Sean wrote in his book that you need to drink 30 ounces of water in the morning. I don't care why, I trust him, Mm. and I trust that he's a great scientist, and he's all about human optimization, I'm gonna do that. I trust you as an entrepreneur and someone I look up to in this category of life, I'm gonna do that. And so I just start adopting things. And I think there's a gift to just being for lack of a better term, ignorant. Like, you know, they say ignorance is bliss. So much of my success has just been because no one told me that I couldn't fly. No one said those, you don't have wings. And so I was just like, watch this, and I flew. You know what I mean? I created a software company with no software background, a franchise without any, without, I dropped out of college in 32 days, bro, out of junior college, right? They're like, well, you don't have a law degree. Let's pause on that. Why did you drop out? I I just felt like I didn't belong. I, I was constantly, just like high school, I felt constantly behind, and I figured, all right, I'm gonna go to junior college and see if I can get on track. Because, you know, they say go to college, we're Mm. we're new to, uh, like I would be the first family member to graduate college 
because remember, we escaped the Soviet Union and came here uh, when I was six, and so it was a big deal, and I felt that pressure on me, and I truly wanted to have a college degree just to say I've done this, right? Mm. Um, but just like high school, it felt like I didn't belong. It felt like I would have to study three or four or five times harder than everyone else, and I remember in, in high school, the, the FOIL method, remember FOIL, first, inner, outer, last? Nope. See that? I've no one does. never heard that. But it was part of algebra or something. Oh, but God, I cheated my way through all of mathematics. I have no idea. God bless you. I was so bad at it that I remember showing my answer and the teacher going, but that's, you're not going to get credit because you didn't do FOIL. And this is the only thing I remember about high school because mm -hmm. she like chastised me so much. She says, you didn't do the first, inner, outer, last. You didn't show your work, yet you got the answer. And I remember thinking, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, man. I'm going to produce you the results. You already knew that? I, I knew that. I was going to be my own boss. Wow. I'm going to be my own boss. I need to produce an outcome. And people are going to produce outcomes for me. I don't care how they produce it. Hmm. Don't produce it unethically. Don't produce it by cheating someone, killing someone. But produce the outcome I want. And I will actually reward you for producing it faster. Instead of doing this amount of work, if you can do this amount of work and produce the outcome, our industry rewards that. Hmm. The education system doesn't. And so the same thing happened in college. So like 31, 32 days in, I'm like, all right, I'm out. I'm falling behind. I feel like a dumbass. I'm having to study three, four times as much to remember things that I feel are irrelevant to where my path in life. And so I moved on. I was like, all right, full in entrepreneurship. Did any of that chip away at your belief that you could do the entrepreneurship thing? Or you just knew uh, this isn't going to matter? I felt that I was so unemployable in terms of like every job I had gotten fired from also, right? <laughs> Except for Disneyland. I worked at Disneyland for six and a half years. I didn't get fired, I quit. Every other job I got fired from. The bagel store on Balboa Island, Adventure City, um, you name it, every place. And so I was like, I'm unemployable, no one wants to employ me. I know I can be a better boss like, and, and, and have people like me who are, I don't know, maybe a bit of misfits, mm. uh, free thinkers, uh, outcome producers without showing the work, work for me. and. I'll create my own little tribe. I've always known I was a black sheep. And so school and not doing well in school did not deter me from being an entrepreneur. In fact, all it did was say, this is your only path, dude. Mm. No one's gonna employ you. You're unemployable. You're gonna lose every job you have. Um, and it was because of the conflict that I have. I always questioned authority. And I think that's a great behavior to have, but know that if you constantly question authority, you're probably not employable, right? The whole idea of having a boss is they're your source of authority. And so I always questioned authority. I questioned the education system. And so I knew that I had to beat my own path. So all it did is solidify my resolve. Yeah, it's interesting, the idea of questioning authority. So that's always been my problem. I've always had a problem with authority. Uh, I'm not even sure. So I mean, look, 50% of us is hardwired. So I'll say that for whatever reason, I've just always had an issue with that. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely, but I'm very employable. I was an amazing employee. So it's weird, it's like this bizarre conflict of I hate it, I hate people being able to tell me what to do, which is why I was so hell-bent to become my own boss. Hmm. Um, but I would silently conform. So it's really interesting and bucking out of that is difficult. I actually wanna talk about that. There's gonna, I think a huge part of this conversation will end up being about that. But first I wanna talk about imperfect action. Yes. So. We've got our morning routine. We know we need to be hyper-efficient. I still think I failed to convey like that, that real subtle nuance of what a big difference. But if people can just, like you said, model the behavior, great. So people have that unlock. But they're going to, most people are diminished by the failures, by not being good at school, by whatever. They've been kicked in the teeth enough in life. Yeah. So they convince themselves they're not going to be able to do it.
And the number of people, no matter how many times I say, because I talk a lot about you need to learn, right? So whatever you're gonna do, you're gonna learn about it. But then people end up in the death loop of like, oh, I'm gonna learn for nine years because I don't think I understand. And I'm like, no, no, no. If you learn something in the morning, you start using it in the afternoon. So like you have to go right away. Otherwise it's, it's all gonna be, um, book knowledge is not gonna be practical. Right. It's gonna be theoretical, it's not gonna be applied. So what is imperfect action and how have you mustered the courage to actually do it when you know that failure is so possible? So I'll start with the idea of failure first. And I learned from Napoleon Hill's book, Outwitting the Devil, that there is no such thing as failure. I have reframed it in my head as I will experience temporary defeat many times in my life, but I will never experience failure. And once you accept that. Why, what's failure? Why won't you experience failure? Failure is a choice. And so if you choose not to, like if you choose not to drink any more water from that cup, no matter how much I make you, you choose not to drink it, it's not gonna happen. So is failure when you actually stop trying? It's when you stop trying. It's a choice to stay down, right? And it's okay to stay down and, and gather your wits and then get back up, hence making it temporary defeat. Mm. The moment you choose to stay down by because of not trying, you have given up. So let's just say giving up instead of failure. Failure shouldn't even exist. It's temporary defeat. So once I know that, then I'm like, well, there's no such thing as failure because I choose not to accept it or acknowledge it. Therefore, I will only see temporary defeats in life. And the more things that I attempt to do that are new, the higher the probability of having temporary defeats. However, each one of those defeats are a lesson that I could learn from and improve because the human mind and psyche and body are very adaptable. Uh, playing ping pong against one of your guys here was different than playing against Lisa, your wife, who's a beast at it. And so I had to adopt. Um, the body is so adaptable. So knowing that, if I learn something first thing in the morning, I wanna be able to use it as soon as possible. I don't wanna wait till it's perfect. I don't wanna wait till we have the trademark or the copyright. Like I was the one out the gate launching Fit Body Bootcamp before it was trademark and my attorney was like, stop. I will always lean into imperfect action because I do know that the universe will collude with me, will conspire with me when I am leaning into imperfect action. I can always course correct as I go. See, people always, we're so black and white, bro. We are so black and white. And I was the king of black and white. Like, if I do this and if it doesn't work out, then I will fail. Well, fuck. With that mindset, and if that's the only outcome you choose to accept, that's scary. That it's, it's either going to be a win or a fail. What if it's somewhere in the middle that there's a temporary defeat and therefore you can back up the car and go down the next road? And then temporary defeat, back up the car again, go down the next road. So imperfect action tells me that the person, the universe, universe will reward the person who acts the quickest. That's just how the universal collective consciousness works. If we know that to be true, then I will take an idea that I learned, I will launch it immediately, and I will course correct as I go, and the universe will reward me because of that. And again, it's a What do you mean when you say the universe? A, you're a man of faith, right? I am a man of faith that there's a God, a higher power. The book that you gave me, my friend, um, The Power of Myth, Joseph mm. Campbell, really talks about consciousness and, and our human animal. We are consciousness riding in this meat sack that's a human animal that has impulsively wants to eat and lean into comfort and convenience and greed. And you know, if this was the only cup of water left and a few hours went by, one of us are gonna wanna attack it. That's what the human animal wants to do. Consciousness goes, I'm just gonna look through these windows called the eyes. I'm gonna control my human animal. Most people are, their light, their inner radiance is so stifled 
And the way I show it at the project, and we'll probably get into the project later, but imagine this light bulb and it glows bright within. That's our radiance. We are connected to the source, to God. And all of our consciousness together is the universe. And so if I take that bulb and I put a black blanket over it and another layer of black blanket and another black blanket, soon you barely see the glow. Most people, their radiance has been stifled because they put food, drugs, alcohol, infidelity, pornography, laziness, binge watching television, all these layers of distraction over their radiance that's supposed to glow so bright that if you were able to remove all that, everyone's got that great consciousness, but all those blankets on top of your light stifles it, and therefore you become more of a human animal because you've stifled consciousness. And so the work, greatest work we can ever do in our life is the work we do on ourselves, which is really removing all of those layers of blankets so that the light can shine bright. And then you know this, you walk into somewhere and people are magnetically attracted to you. It's not for any other reason other than you've done the self work. You're Tom 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, just like I'm Bedros 2.0, 3.0, And therefore, people are like, man, there's something about this person. That's the universal connection. We all have consciousness. Their human animal can see that this person is glowing brighter and they're attracted to that. And it's our job then to go, let me help you expose your radiance as well. So the how, do you, how do you start pulling those napkins, the black cloth? How do you peel those off? Self-awareness, right? Self-awareness first. Um, until you realize that you are a human animal. Um, I realized that I was a human animal. Meaning 11. you have impulses? Impulsive, Instinct? that you're emotional, that you react on emotion and not logic. Uh, that you make decisions on feelings, and sometimes those are somewhat permanent decisions based on temporary feelings. Mm. And we've all made those. I'm not pointing fingers. I was the king of making bad decisions on temporary feelings that later led to regret. Uh, but 11 years ago, I had this massive panic attack, and I talked about that in my book. Um, and thank God, man, for that panic attack, because I was 37 years old. I thought I was having a heart attack. I'm like, I'm at the peak of my prime. Fit Body Bootcamp's starting to thrive, like just blowing up. It's becoming this international brand. We got recognition from Inc. Magazine and Entrepreneur Magazine. Um, yet my marriage was starting to fall apart. My babies at the time, they're 14 and, or 15 and 17 now, uh, they wouldn't come running to me when I'd come into the house because I gave off this tense energy, mm. right? And I would impulsively just emotionally eat when I'd get home, bagels and cream cheese because I needed the dopamine hits. Yet I was running a fitness franchise, so I was incongruent with the fitness industry that I'm supposed to be in. I'm making videos at the time on YouTube from the chin up because I didn't really want to show the poor and out of shape that I was in. And so I share all this with you because that panic attack led me to realize, uh, okay, one, it wasn't a heart attack, thankfully. The doctor did the EKG test and was like, hey, you're good, but how's your life? I'm like, well, I'm stressed. I'm like drinking NyQuil to fall asleep every night and taking Vicodin to fall asleep. And um, I would wake up and take Adderall and drink a whole bunch of coffee to then you know, mm. kick that foggy headedness from the drugs the night before. And so I was always behind on schedule, felt like an imposter because I would expect something from my employees that I wouldn't even do myself. I share all this with you because that panic attack, which felt like a heart attack, led me to start doing some self-work. The self-work started with a therapist because I, I didn't want to take, um, they gave me Xanax, dude. I was on Xanax for four days. And I don't know if you've ever taken Xanax, but 
for me, it felt like someone turned off my creativity switch. Mm -hmm. Like if we have all these different switches, someone just like a dimmer switch brought it down to like one. And so, all right, I don't feel anxious, but I also don't feel like trying anything. So I'll just chill out at home. Like four days in, I'm like, this is how I lose it all. So I went back to the doctor. I'm like, dude, I can't take this stuff. He goes, well, to manage your, your stress and anxiety, have you thought about talking to a therapist? I'm like, oh, that's for crazy people, right? But um, reluctantly, I found a good therapist, Dr. Kevin Downing in Brea, California. And um, you know, we spent the next like 15 months, every Monday after work, I'd drive to Brea and I'd sit on his couch. And some Mondays I was like, Kevin, could I just, could I just curl up on the couch, pay you to just let me sleep here? Just take a nap, mm -hmm. I'm just drained. And he would just have lighter conversations with me those days. Still charge me, but a lighter conversation. And then there was days where we did the heavy work where I just felt like I was just walking to my car in this parking lot, like I was just walking through molasses. Like we peeled away a lot of scars from childhood trauma, like being molested as a kid in Armenia uh, by two older boys to just being bullied when we came here. But all this to say, Kevin brought to surface self-awareness for me. And I realized that, dude, I shield and I soothe. The ego is a real thing and it is there to protect us. Uh, but the ego will help us shield and soothe. So if I make a lot of money, I can surround myself with yes people and yes people are gonna be good to me. They're gonna, mm -hmm. they're gonna do it. So of course I wanted to make a lot of money. Um, all this to say, self-awareness comes from self-work. Once you do the self-work, you become self-aware. You're like, oh my God, I am flawed, Tom. I'm a horrible friend. When you're like, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, what do you mean by that? That's because I'm reacting to some weird feelings that I haven't processed through. Mm -hmm. That may have happened as a kid, man, just because the way you said something I gets triggered. It triggers me, right? And so I started to do the self-work. It was ugly, it was not fun. Um, I had weeks at a time where I had to process about what happened to me as a kid, man. And I, do I tell my parents who are in their 80s? No, there's no point in telling them. They're just gonna feel this guilt and mm -hmm. why don't you tell us sooner and they're gonna die with that memory? Like, so like, keep it to yourself, you know? So those are real things I have to process. Do I share this publicly? Well, I feel like I'm supposed to serve humanity and the selfish, most selfish thing I do is each time I serve humanity, I serve myself. So, all right, I'm gonna try and talk about this on stage one time. And, one day it came out on stage and I could see the whole audience squirming in their seats because who the hell wants to hear that, hey, look, if you've been molested or sexually or physically, emotionally abused, you probably have trauma and you carry this shield and you're either shielding or soothing, uh, soothing with drugs, alcohol, infidelity, whatever, or shielding as in not letting people in. And so how is that showing up with your kids, with your friendships, business partnerships, your wife, your, your husband? Um, and so the more I talk about it, and so I very quickly realized that, oh my God, talking about this allows me to have more aha moments. More aha moments lead me to taking off yet another layer mm -hmm. of that blanket and the light gets brighter and brighter and the brighter the lights, light gets, the more people wanna hear from me and talk to me and do business with me and stay around me. And, and I realized this is how we make impact. We all wanna serve humanity. We all know that we're on this planet for a reason. We have a higher level of purpose. And so we feel the gnawing in our gut, like I wanna impact lives, I wanna change lives, I wanna inspire people. Cool, start with fixing victim number one before you go fix everybody else, mm. you know? Talk to me about the light. So there's two ideas in here. There's uh, the universe is conspiring with you. I definitely love to know more about that. And then there's the idea of the light is sort of already on, but you've covered it up and you just have to peel it away. Yeah. 
How much of it is the light itself, even if you didn't have it covered up, do you, is there a way to make that brighter, like whatever that thing is, or do you feel like, nope, we're born perfect and life diminishes us? I do believe, and again, I've got no science to back this up. You've probably had far smarter people sitting here at this table who could back this up with some kind of science. But I, again, I, I'm so convicted in my beliefs. And how about this? Maybe I'm absolutely all wrong, but just because I believe in this so much that I make it so. Mm. If that alone makes me successful and happy in life and feeling like I've had some sense of meaning and significance, I'm good to go, man. It's interesting, you actually said something earlier and I wanted to say, you know how crazy you sound right now, right? But it's so effective that, um, I. so here's another idea, I don't know how to get people to embody this, but so what you said that made you sound crazy, but to me I'm totally with you, is uh, you were talking about the failure and you're like, I refuse to acknowledge it. Yeah. You both, and you talked about this, but you both have to look at it, assess what went wrong, look at the data, learn from it so that you can do something more effective next time. And at the same time, you have to completely ignore whatever temptation you have to believe that that means that you're not going to succeed in the future and that this is somehow a commentary on your capabilities. It's this really weird schism of yeah. you have to look at both things. So yeah, you're right. And and I think that it's true what you're saying. So I'm not a <clears throat> believer in the universe is conspiring. I think the universe could give a shit. Like it just it it is there's obviously something that we don't understand. So whatever there is some sort of god-ish thing, there's something I don't understand, right? Why is there something instead of nothing? It's arguably the most profound question that you can ever ask. I won't derail us on that, but so there's obviously <laughs> <so> something. <laughs> yeah, there's obviously something that I don't understand, but I don't think it's working for me. I think that there are a set of rules. The world works a certain way. And so when you were talking about human as animal, that resonates with me. We, I'm, I have told uh, my, the people in Impact Theory University like a dozen times, if there's gonna be an epitaph on my tombstone, I would like it to read, you're having a biological experience. Meaning, even if there is a God, that God has given you a, a set of physics, chemistry, biology, and they work a certain way. And if you try to fight them, your life will be miserable because you will be unable to predict the outcome of your behaviors. If you can't predict the outcome of your behaviors, you won't be able to take right action. Meaning, the action that moves you most efficiently towards your goals. So. I don't think it's working with me, but I still think everything you said is true in that if I align myself with the way things actually work, I'll make rapid progress. So why does the world, I think the, the exact word you said where the universe will conspire with the person who acts fastest. I think that's true. I just don't think the universe is, it's not the language I would use. Sure. So, but it is so in alignment with the first person to act will learn faster than the next person. They're obviously not afraid to fail. If they can lower their ego enough to take in the lesson of whatever failure they get by moving first, then they can improve and keep going. It's the action, improvement, and continuing to move that's the conspiring. But whether you believe that it's God that's gonna work with you, the universe is gonna work with you because you do it, or you just fucking do it, whatever, as long as you're on that path, you're going to win. So I think we might be saying the same thing, bro. A hundred percent. Yeah. There's no doubt. Because you just said that on your tombstone, if there's gonna be anything, it's gonna say that you're having a biological experience. 
and this biological experience set by God or whoever else, right. whatever else, right? Um, there's rules to the game is kind of what you're implied. And that if you play by the rules, that you're gonna win. If you don't play by the rules, if you don't understand the game, you're, it's gonna be a painful life, yep. a painful human experience, right? We can agree to that. And so the way I look at it is, it's just that the source, universe, all of our collective consciousness together, is like, we've all agreed subconsciously, these are the rules. Mm. Every person knows that they gotta lean into imperfect action. Do they? Deep I don't down, know that they do. If you take out the layers, bro, take That's out the layers. It's a lot of work though, man. It is a lot of work. This is why we all start off as some level of radiance. Like you look at a child so pure, going back to the question you asked, like, is that light just on? I believe we all have, I don't know anything about electricity, so I'm gonna say whatever. Let's say this is a 20 watt light, sure. light bulb, right? We're all born with a 20 watt light bulb and it's nothing's covering it. Ah, and there's this beautiful baby and we hold it and ah, there it is. And then mom and dad are like, oh, you're chunky. Oh, you're clumsy now that you're starting to walk mm -hmm. around. These are layers being put on. Now they plant you in front of the TV a lot. And now because the mom and dad wanna go on date nights and they, don't, they can't afford a nanny, they're gonna slap the iPad in front of you on date nights. So now you're screen sucking and now you're just seeing all this, more blankets are being put on, this light. The light, the source, your radiance is being stifled. Soon you become addicted to watching television. It becomes your thing and you don't connect and you don't know how to build rapport. Now you're a teenager and you're awkward and you're strange and you don't know and you're now playing video games instead of socializing. And I share all this with you because that radiance we, you know, layer by layer from food to, to names, like, oh, you're clumsy, you're chunky. Uh, we're all, our family, everyone in our family's fat. You know how many times I heard that in my life? Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna be fat strong. And so when I made this like big proclamation in 2010, like, fuck it, I'm gonna train for six weeks and run a marathon. Mm -hmm. Like, my inner voice was like, bro, you're a fat dude that just lifts weights. You power lift. I'm like, but now I'm gonna run a marathon, you just watch. So literally the inner critic and the inner advocate are fighting within me. And that was the first time I allowed the inner advocate to win and I hired a running coach and I, and I said, make me a running program. I'm gonna run the San Diego Rock and Roll Marathon. My wife at the time ran marathons like three a year. And look what a freaking hypocrite I was here, Tom. Jokingly, I told my wife many years before we got married, we're still dating. I was like, hey, you know, if you marry me, I'll run a marathon, right? Just jokingly. But again, subconsciously, deep down inside, there's some truth to this. Mm. That was me testing whether she's gonna say yes or no, right? We're still dating, we're new at this whole relationship. So she's like, fine, I will, right? So then let's say three years later, or four years later, we got married. Bro, it was nine years in and she ran three marathons a year. So almost 30 marathons later, I had yet, Whoa. what a liar I was, what a hypocrite I was. Mm. Now one could say, well, I just jokingly said that, I didn't really mean it at the time. I'm like lifting all these weights, I'm deadlifting, I'm squatting, I'm benching, I'm a big boy lifting big weights. God's made me to lift weights. Like, you can justify it any way you want. Then you can always find evidence to back it up, mm. right? Look at my traps, look at my shoulders at the time, right? So I share this with you because one day she's like, hey, I'm gonna run the rock and roll marathon. And I was like, cool. Awesome, have a great time. I then left on a trip that day to, uh, to run one of my masterminds. At the time I used to run my masterminds in uh, uh, Miami, San Diego, Las Vegas. We're in Las Vegas and there's like 40, 50 of my coaching clients and Craig Ballantyne is there as well. 
I, I invited Craig to help coach this group with me. He was the guest speaker. And Craig's telling one of the people who was complaining about procrastinating, yeah, I just keep procrastinating and I just keep doing all these things because I don't want to launch my products. I don't want to mm -hmm. face the rejection of it, potentially whatever, right? New entrepreneur. And so Craig, very curmudgeonly goes, uh, you know what you need to do? You need to cut that deadline. You need to cut your deadline in half again. And then he just starts lacing into this person. And I'm sitting here, I'm like, oh my God, he's speaking to me right now. Here I am, nine years later, almost 30 marathons. I've yet to make good on my promise. So I text my wife under the table. I'm like, when did you say that marathon was? She goes, in like eight weeks. I'm like, great, sign me up for it, right? So she goes, I'll sign you up for the half. Every marathon has a half marathon. I'm like, that's bullshit. Sign me up for the full marathon because I'm also all in on everything I do, which is a great thing unless you're like going to do cocaine or heroin. Uh, but I always make sure my addictions are good these days. Um, these days. <laughs> these days, full disclosure, these days. Um, I am pretty obsessive. And I think that is a gift, but it, mm -hmm. it's, it could also be very damaging. Like, like, under the right circumstances, you would find me dead in a gutter. Um, and so I have to be vigilant and militant in my schedule and the people that I surround myself with, my, my thought patterns, all of it. Um, going back to Diana and the marathon. So she books me for the rock and roll marathon. I find a running coach and how the universe colludes with us, my friend. You ready for this? Ready. In that group, in that coaching group, was a woman named Jill Brewer. Her website, I shit you not, runwithjill.com. She's a running coach. So at lunch, I'm telling her about it, not even connecting the dots. Like, hey, I just signed up for a marathon. I'm a bit nervous because I could deadlift, I could squat, I could bench, but run? I've never had to run, right? She goes, do you need a running program? I'm like, well, yeah, I'm gonna find me a running coach. She goes, that's what I do, runwithjill.com. I'm like, oh my God. She makes me a running program. Lo and behold, I train for six weeks, run the marathon, everything's fine. I broke through some glass ceiling, some limiting belief that I was only made to do this. And so when we were born, we have this radiance, this light, and families mean well. Your aunts, your uncles, your moms, your dads, but soon they call you chunky and fat and clumsy and all this, and you begin to buy all those things, and your radiance goes away, your light dims, and you're just like this robot living other people's stories or narrative that they put on you, until one day you decide to do the self-work and peel back painfully the layers to expose your radiance of your whopping 20 watts. Then, you could do even deeper work and raise the wattage like a dimmer switch to whatever. I don't know what the level is because I'm still a work in progress. If you ever have me back 10 years from now, <laughs> there might be a higher version of myself. Um, but that's where I am today is raising that wattage. Mm. Yeah. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. 
Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. It's really, it's a very interesting metaphor. And I think that as people learn about the way the mind works and they realize that you have to be really thoughtful about what you allow yourself to think. Um, I'm a big believer that you, you are what you repeat. And so whatever you allow yourself to repeat, you're going to become. And even so the negative stuff, no matter how absurd, if you repeat it enough, you'll actually start to believe it. And the positive stuff, no matter how absurd at first it seems, you'll start to believe it if you allow yourself to repeat it. There's a really great book called Feeling Great by David D. Burns. And in it, he talks about pattern interrupting. Like you have to pattern interrupt your negative thoughts. And that was something that really served me. In the beginning, I was so prone to believe negative things about myself that I just had to learn. I I had to make a rule in my life. I don't allow myself to repeat negative things about myself, even if I think they're true, because it's not going to serve me. How do you interrupt your patterns these days? I literally say, I don't allow myself to think that. No, stop, like whatever. I'll sometimes even say it out loud. Also, I have found if people ever find me making this face, that face breaks negativity. I can't hold that look on my face and feel negative. It puts me in an aggressive move forward posture. Now, also, I find that I'm going to have that, those lines etched into my face because I do that so often, but it really makes me feel powerful. And so doing little things like that, no, I don't do that. Overwhelm is one. I don't do overwhelm. And so I say that to myself all the time because I feel myself getting overwhelmed. And so I'm always trying to tell people when I say I don't do overwhelm, I don't mean that in like a cool way that like, oh, I'm so tough. I, I just don't allow myself to go down that path. And because to your point about self awareness, I've spent so much time identifying why I feel a certain way without judgment. Oh, that's insecurity. It's emotional weakness, whatever. Not, not in any way, shape, or form trying to be cool about it. Just, oh, okay, I feel that way because I'm insecure about this thing. Cool. 
But because I have that level of self-awareness and because I force myself to do things that take my emotional awareness, I'm feeling a thing, to being able to articulate what thing I am feeling Mm -hmm. and then why I'm feeling it, when I feel, to me it feels like my brain is revving up. That's what overwhelm feels like. My brain is moving faster and faster and faster and faster to the point where it's not, it's not a level of efficiency, it's overwhelm. It's just, it's too much, it's revving too fast. It's like being in first gear and stamping on the yes. gas. That's exactly what I pictured in my mind's eye too, a car in park, yet stepping on the gas. So yes. You hear all this rev, but it's not in any place where it's gonna get momentum. Correct. That was a very interesting analogy. That, that is exactly Oof. what overwhelm feels like to me. Oof. So when I hear the I'm like, nope, I don't do overwhelm, stop. And just by saying that, breathing from my diaphragm, mm. it's like you can change the neurochemistry. You're having a biological experience. So I'm reminding myself, even going back to what you were saying, you're having a panic attack. You think you're having a heart attack. You go outside. I happen to, I've heard the story. So I know you feel the sunshine on your face. You get some fresh air. You take some deep breaths. Oh, whoa. Okay. It's passed, even if it was a heart attack. And so changing your state, you know, just stealing directly from Tony Robbins, the ability to change your state will change your life. But you have to get control of that. And so... Getting people is all goes back to this. You have this glowing orb inside of you. You have to understand, I think, that your point about you can raise that up over time, that's the area to focus. Whether you have it or not when you're born, to me, whatever. Our job is to uncover it and then to raise that dimmer so that it's, it's really kicking off some wattage. But to do that, you have to think right. Bro, what if the whole meaning of life was like we're all born with that orb, our light, lit, fully covered with dozens of layers. Maybe you have 20, I have 18, he's got 32. Meaning of life is uncover it. And when you don't, you will suffer with depression, anxiety, stress, overwhelm, which is consciousness mm. telling you you're not doing what you should be. You're shielding, you're soothing, you're distracting, you're doing all these things instead of working on self because when you take off that last layer, like potential has been achieved. But well before taking off that last layer, maybe five layers, six layers in, now you're hitting your stride in life. Like I feel like the last, you know, the so 11 years ago was when I had that panic attack, anxiety attack, that led me to Dr. Kevin. Uh, that led me to so much self-work, a decade of self-work. But about, I'd say about five years, years in, so I start feeling like this rhythm. Like, all right, man, like I'm really doing it. And fit body hockey sticks and more businesses and more opportunities. And I get in the best shape of my life. And it's not even like you have to take off that last layer to achieve bliss. Maybe that's like your peak state. And whether we all get there or not, I don't know. But I think, what if that was it? You just nailed it. All of the meaning of life is there's your orb. Congratulations. It's covered with a shit ton of gunk. Your job is to take the layers off. Mm. And in the process of taking those layers off, that's the self-work, that's doing the deep work. How boring would life be if we're like, yeah, I'm not what I'm supposed to do? It's interesting. So I think that the, that is so close to how I would define the meaning of life. The way I've always thought of it in my head is, the, first of all, whatever, life only has a meaning that you give it. I don't think there is any truly intrinsic meaning, but I think everybody should have an answer. My answer is the meaning of life, the reason we're all here, is to see how much of your potential you can turn into skill set. And so if 
pushing the metaphor, and I'm not sure this is entirely what you meant, but if that glowing orb is, it's you now have something that's useful, that lights the way, that allows you to move forward in the way that you want, that, that feels really close to, to what I think people ought to be doing. It seems to me, and I've been on this path, like intentionally and in a very focused way, like in a ruthlessly focused way, the last decade, that for me, again, that is the meaning of my life, mm. to just keep removing the layers. What is Bedros 2.0, 10.0 gonna look like? Um, and again, but I'm also so convicted by my belief system that I can, I also know I could will things into being so. Like I can will the universe to work, collude with me, right? Conspire with me, which also I, it goes back to like your rules. Like I also believe the universe has rules. And it's like, hey man, you thought of something? Yeah, every second that passes, says the universe to me in my mind, every second that passes, I'm gonna make it less achievable. So you thought of something, you just learned a new skill? Do it, motherfucker, do it. Yeah, but it's not gonna be right, Mr. Universe. I know it's not, but you could either wait to get it down correctly, but you're gonna be so in the deficit because all the number of minutes and hours and months that go by mm. that I've strike, you know, all these strikes against you. Or if you do it now, take imperfect action. You just learned it, deploy it, you can course correct. Like the universe is testing you. Like, do I wanna keep rewarding this guy for this idea? And I'm like, oh my God, I did it. It's scary, is it gonna work? It's like, well, it kinda worked. Okay, well, great. But can you fix it? Yes, I can. I'm going to keep fixing it. it. It's this cool thing where whether to call it the rules, call it the universe, I really believe that the self-work and the rules and taking that orb that's glowing and trying to raise its radiance, the more we do, we do develop these skill sets. Like these skill sets exist, but we uncover them, unearth them, and then we could use it to make money, have meaning, leave an impact, have significance, mm -hmm. create a legacy, uh, I suppose we could also use it for evil, uh, but that goes back to character, core values, and all that other shit, right? Yeah, that, that's a whole another conversation because I think most people that from the outside we go, that person's evil, they, they never think they're evil. No. But there's something you said that I want to um, go deeper on. So I am reading this book called The Evolution of Everything by Matt Ridley, and he talks about, because you were saying like you need to take imperfect action, the universe conspires with you if you're the first person, that it's gonna get harder the longer you wait. And in the book, he's talking about the, a, a potential explanation for why that really is. And his theory is that because everything evolves, literally everything, that um, electricity gets invented and the light bulb is going to be invented necessarily after electricity but that it will be a certain period of time after electricity that you get the light bulb based on what kind of filaments are there, can you blow glass? Like there's all these things that have to come together, right? Sure. So, uh, and he points out that like, we think of these moments of, um, that inventions are these moments of genius and that it's this one person that sort of propelled us forward in this great leap. And he said he doesn't think that the world actually works that way. Mm. That what's happening is things are evolving and things will happen at a given point based on that evolution. And that there, uh, there are like eight different people that have been credited with the invention of the light bulb. And it's only because we're in the West that we think of Thomas Edison. But in reality, in different countries, almost at exactly the same time, other people came up with uh, a light bulb. And that there was the same thing, I forget, another really famous invention, I'm forgetting if it was a telephone or the phonograph, whatever, but it was like 
they, the, the patent was filed in the patent office on the same day. And it's a really interesting idea. And uh, Michael Jackson said the same thing. He called, I think it was Quincy Jones, in the middle of the night. And he's like, Quincy, I just had an idea for a song and we have to record it. And he's like, why do we have to record it right now? Mike, it's like three in the morning. He said, because if we don't record it right now, Prince is going to. And he was like, but it's just a random fucking idea that you've had. What are you talking about? How would Prince know? He's like, no, like once it's out there, it's out there. The ethers of the universe. Yeah, and I think what he was really getting at, excuse me the chills, what he's getting at is there's all this shit going on in the world and it all comes together and it, it, we're all the product of our time. This really freaks me out as somebody trying to have a second, um, like arc in his entrepreneurial career. It's like, I got it so right with Quest. And now I'm trying to do something totally different in a totally different field. And I'm like, ooh, there's really something to, am I, am I of the moment? Because a kid growing up now, they're, they're just of the moment. They're mm-hmm. not thinking, like I didn't think about Quest. Quest was me, and look, it was me and my partners, don't get me wrong, it was this confluence of three people. But just to keep it about the part of me yeah. that was me, I was reacting against being an entrepreneur, chasing money, Ugh. I was like, this is so gross. I just wanna be myself. This idea, uh, wanting authenticity, wanting to build community, all of this, but I had it as a, as a, I was moving away from all the bullshit that I saw that I didn't like about building businesses. And it happened to coincide right with social media. Now, I was on the bleeding edge of social media, not because I was clever, because I was having a big emotional reaction and I decided to pursue it. And so I was of that moment. And so all of those things that happened to coincide right as social media was coming, boom, Quest hockey sticks, it goes crazy. And like, if you think about what you built, if that had been in 2019, it would be a very different story, right? right? right, right. And so all this idea of like, it's out there sort of in the ether and are we able to have the balls to move when it strikes us because it's out there for everybody. Well said. You know what, there is something to, you know, being in that moment, right? And so are you saying then that you feel like in the second arc, you feel differently than you did the first time around? Like you know too much? Are you too smart? It's not that I know too much. It's that I really had to. So I spent about a million dollars launching a comic book. And it was a financial waste because I was making comics for when I was reading comics. Mm. And I was reading comics in the late 80s, early 90s. And so then my instinct was to make films like the films that I had when I was a kid, but that's done, man. It's dead and gone. Like kids don't even think about that. And so I, in my 40s, had to go on this journey of like, okay, wait, comic books are still getting turned into movies. So who's doing it right? That leads you to Japan, which then ultimately leads you to ask the question, why does a single title, a single title, Bedros, in Japan outsells the entire Western comic market, okay? Outsells Wonder Woman, Batman, Spider-Man, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, X-Men, all of it combined is outsold by Demon Slayer. And so I was like, how the fuck is that possible? And looking at it then leads me to this idea that they call shonen, which translates as the few years. So they had narrowed in on this idea, which is now I know known as the age of imprinting, 11 to 15, 
where the brain's in a really weird state, which is why power of myth, taking kids on these journeys that you guys are now doing, which yes. is incredible, where you have to have this rite of passage. But the reason that a rite of passage happens at that fucking age is because your brain is in this hyper malleable state where it's no longer drinking from the parents, it's drinking from culture. And so now in my 40s, I had to discover manga and anime and like really be mm. in it. And so it, it's, it's now very calculated. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to figure out like what this moment is. Now maybe I've learned so much, that's perfect. And maybe I'm now at, because I feel like I'm at the cutting edge of something. I feel again the way I felt at Quest where I see something other people don't see, but I had to brute force it. Whereas at Quest, I was of the moment. Yeah. So I'm like, I don't know. Like my whole life, I get to answer this question. It's fucking fascinating to me. I'm totally unafraid of failure. Like that just is not a concern Dude, for me. Are you as into anime as you were in the comic books of our now, era? Now this scares me. I was saying this to my mom this weekend. I don't know if everyone is as malleable as I am and they just don't do the thing. I have a process. I can walk people through it. This is what you have to do if you want to fall in love with something new. Or is it not a process? And well, it is a process, but that it won't work for most people. And it works for me because by nature, I just happen to be hyper malleable. I don't know the answer. So I act as if anybody can do it, but I don't know if that's true. And I'm terrified by the 50% of us that's hardwired because some people don't meet minimum requirements. Bro, okay, all right, can I tell you something about Please. yourself that I've figured out about you? Please. You, my opinion, I'm just gonna share my opinion. Please. That I think you give too much credit to the hard wiring and not enough credit to the fucking savage that you it's are. Interesting, I only think about the savage. And the only reason I acknowledge the hard wiring is I've, I'm watching culture walk a stupid line where they're acting like there is no hard wiring and that's gonna end in fucking disaster mm -hmm. yeah. because you can no longer predict the outcome of your actions. Mm. So speaking of which, Bajros, let's talk about this new movement in your life. I know sure. you're sunsetting the Empire podcast, yeah. starting something new. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the Empire podcast, well, part of it is phases of life, right? Like we all go through seasons of life. And so when I was broke and, you know, living in Section 8 housing, when we first came to the United States, it all I wanted was money because I remember the conversation in our house. And when you're the... When you're the small one in the house, I was six years old when we came to America. So my older brother was 19, my sister was 21. My mom and dad and my older brother and sister were always talking about how we're running out of money before we run out of month. Like every end of the month, it was always having to make a choice between do we leave the water on or the electricity on? And it was always water because you could live in the dark. You can't live without water in these Section 8 housing apartments that we lived in, in Santa Ana. And... Um, so I kind of grew up thinking like money's going to solve a lot of problems. And so I want money. I want money. And so as you, as you become an entrepreneur, you have money and then soon you cover your costs and, and, and have a good life and give your family experiences. And you start realizing, all right, there's more to life than money. And so seasons, phases of life. And so, but, and as it turns out, I was good at making money. You do anything long enough. Maybe part of it is that 50% hardwiring, the other part might have been just me being so desperate for it. I just looked at any mentor I could find from old school copywriters like Gary Halbert all the way to, you know, people that really focused on how the mind operates from like the Tony Robbinses and beyond. Um, and so 
the Empire podcast was really about me sharing my gift of being an entrepreneur and how to turn any idea into, into a business and that business into an empire. And then if you want to sell it, sell it. If you want to scale it, scale it and go on. But I realized, especially right around 2019, 2020, with the pandemic and all that, holy hell, man, like we are in a place where society is not doing well now. We see how depression and anxiety has gone through the roof. We see the prescription drugs for uh, mood-altering prescription drugs that are up by 400%, especially during the core of the pandemic. Suicide. Suicide rates. All those things, right? And so I was like, man, I'm in a place where I'm able to mentor my kids and they're staying at home. Thankfully, they're in a good headspace. We're working out with them. We're going on hikes. We're talking to them about what's happening in the world. Do you homeschool like, your kids? No, we don't homeschool them, but they go to private school. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was, the way I explained to them is, hey, guys, this is your great depression. This is your great depression. This is uh, your version of uh, my 9-11, you know, that we experience where there's uncertainty and chaos and economic crash, et cetera. And, and so rather than having them be afraid of it, like you guys are of age, you know, there were so 12 and 14 at the time of the pandemic. And so talking to them, walking them through it, because I just figured my dad never did that with me. Like, I love my dad. He brought us here. He risked his life to bring us to the United States. But everything else was on a need to know basis. And <laughs> I didn't need to know. And so the Empire podcast was all about that, making money, building empires. The Bedros Koulian show that's launching here is me talking about culture, me talking about community, me talking about how we're, it just seems like there's a perfect scientific, artistic design to, they're trying to separate us by left and right, by black and white, by mask and no mask, vax and no vax, by, if they can, if they can separate us by shoe sizes, bro, I feel like they would. And I feel Who's this. they? Like, do you believe in a grand conspiracy, the new world order, that kind of stuff? I don't know if it's a new world order, but I do believe that the they is a very smart group of powerful people that run the world. And there is a smart group of powerful people. They're called the heads of state and the people that voted them into, or not voted them, that financially enabled them to get into there have control. And a great example of that, and I always use it as a micro economy, like a micro scale. Um, I'm the president, no longer the CEO, but I'm the president of Fit Body Bootcamp, a franchise, mm-hmm. right? You could look at as every franchise location, we've got hundreds of franchise locations as a state. The clients in there as the citizens mm-hmm. of that state. Now I could say that um, we're gonna start using Tom Bilyeu's water. Um, and I can mandate all franchisees to start using it. And Tom Bilyeu is gonna give me HQ, the president, a kickback from using that water instead of the other water. Mm. But now I can force my franchisees to use that. Now my franchisees have to then force their clients, their citizens, to use that. I could raise the prices. I could raise the franchise royalty fees. And I could justify it by saying whatever I want. And if you don't comply, you've, well, you've signed a franchise agreement. And that franchise agreement says that I could pull your franchise and make you debrand. And if you debrand, you lose your money. I could stop sending your, your money. Right, and so it's. I'm I'm my own little country. When you look at a franchise, it's a little country right. with a leader and states and citizens, and so when I just look at it that way, well, it just makes sense that, that they exist, the franchisors. And so when you look at all different fran, like what if I'm not saying this 
this doesn't happen. But if me and the other franchisors across many industries, hell, let's just say fitness industry, come together and we're like, hey, from now on, we're all gonna raise the franchise buy-in fee to 80 grand and not lower. Mine's 49.6 right now, right? 80 grand, so we conspire on that. And the franchise royalty fees are not gonna be 7% anymore, it's gonna be 10% across the board, right? If we all conspire to do that, now whatever franchise brand you wanna open up, it seems like mm-hmm. six and one half dozen in the other, Really what we did is we conspired together, just like the universe might conspire, or people conspire to do things. And again, you know, everyone's got best of intentions, but they say the path to hell was paved with good intentions. Yeah. And so do I believe in the they? I do believe that there's a they. At some point, maybe they did go into power to, and there's power. Absolute power is absolutely corrupt, bro. We're not supposed to be this powerful. We're not, we're not, I, I plan on giving away as much of my money as I can so that I save my son and daughter from corruption. Money is corrupt. Money is corrupt when you don't make it yourself. Mm-hmm. I believe that. It's another personal belief that I have. I earned mine. I built mine from the ground up with my wife. Uh, certainly stood on the shoulders of giants and watched what they did and modeled that and paid for coaching and got the results from it. Um, but if I just hand them all the assets and I hand them all the passive streams of income, I do believe that they will shit on their lives. That is probably the biggest, thickest blanket I could put on their radiance. That's interesting. In my opinion. And yeah. so anyhow, I do believe that there is some level of conspiring happening at the top. And so uh, when you look at it that way, um, why divide us? What's the, what do you think is the purpose? The internet did something, especially as we're entering web 3.0. Bro, it created freedom in a way that we hadn't seen. Our, like you remember pre-internet. I remember pre-internet. Vividly. Right? And like I would have to get on a bus and go to service merchandise or wherever to buy something or Gemco or Zodis or whatever the department store was. Now I could Amazon Prime it and it's here the next day. It's exactly what I wanted. And now anyone can create a channel, a YouTube, a network, a platform. The internet has given us so much freedom and that freedom, and humans are, we take an inch, we'll take a mile. That's just how we are. We have gotten too free and I'm pretty sure it gotten too scary. Going back to the franchise model. If my franchisee started to add a juice bar and I said nothing about it and now they're adding squat racks because Fit Body Bootcamps don't have squat racks. Mm -hmm. Now it looks like a, uh, a CrossFit, now they're adding childcare, right? Like, hey, now they're gonna monetize more with childcare. Well, wait a minute, that's, childcare is not part of the Fit Body model. It's a whole different liability insurance. Plus, you have to have certified people, like watching those kids, like you can't just do that. Now you guys have too much freedom. I've gotta bring the compliance officer of Fit Body Bootcamp down on your ass. Isn't it the same thing? The web, the economy has been good for so long, so long, and this web has given people so much freedom that I believe that they needed to create something to create this division and control and compliance of humanity. Um, and so let's tighten the noose down again because it's compliance. the compliance officer coming down on us is, is how I see it. On regular people, I hate to say it this way, mm-hmm. on the civilians, on regular people, wage earners, because first they were gonna tax you and us, we're gonna tax the rich, they're gonna tax mm. you and us. And I'm like, no, don't do that because me and Tom know how to pass that cost along to you. I will raise my prices, I will find a way to still make my product profitable. You, the customer, and the employees will end up paying for it because I'm too clever. And then 
to tax you, they will create inflation. And they did. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so anyway, that's I, I don't know if we're getting political, but but that's how I do believe that control and compliance is being exercised right now by them. Yeah, it's interesting. I sometimes worry that I'm too naive. So I don't have a sense of the they. I am willing to accept that that probably is naivete because I hear your example and that makes a lot of sense to me. And somebody has to be uh, getting funding, people to run campaigns and all that. At the end of the day, we elect, but here in the, in the West anyway, but going back to this idea of the evolution of everything that, you know, cycles happen and um, you've got Ray Dalio mapping out these cycles and empires rise and they fall. And the reason he says that that cycle just repeats endlessly is because there are only so many human personality types. Again, why I think about the 50% that's hardwired, even though in my own life, I'm only thinking about the malleable part is that if there's only so many personality types, then of course things are going to repeat because you just find people bumping into each other and there's a finite number of ways that those personality types will interact and they get in these sort of cause and effect loops and, and they just are what they are. Mm -hmm. And eh, it doesn't repeat exactly, but it rhymes and it rhymes because enough changes and we're, we, there's just like the earth isn't just rotating around the sun, we're also actually flying through space, right? So there's directionality to everything. So there's directionality to culture, but there's also this sort of loop, right? Even though we're going that way and things do change, but there's a lot of rhyming that goes on. So I don't think a lot about the they, but I'm willing to just say, okay, naivete. But what I do think a lot about is as social media has come along, it's an evolutionary moment, right? So we couldn't have predicted how social media was gonna impact us. And the bad news is it's not all bad. In fact, I would say it's primarily good, but it's created this weird moment where because humans are so influenceable that, I mean, that's why they're called influencers, that you end up getting this, when you marry it to an algorithm with our desire to connect with another human and to be swayed by their influence if they have some sort of magnetism or whatever, and then the algorithm just fucking really goes, oh, this is what you respond to. And so it takes you down these like mm -hmm. hyper niche holes. And if you don't have a rule in your life that says you must seek disconfirming evidence, you end up really seeing the world that way. And it just seems true. So whatever the algorithm is showing you, it just feels that's the true narrative. It, it doesn't feel like a narrative. It's just that is true. Yeah. So to your point about, okay, we have division. So I ask myself, okay, if I'm having a biological experience, and when I say there are rules to this game, I mean that the world works a certain way based on the way that the human animal is, based on gravity and physics and all of that stuff. There just is a way that things work. Why are we able to split into camps of two? Why could they divide us by our shoe size? And hopefully people know about that study where you can give people a red shirt or a blue shirt and people will click up and automatically start treating people in the red shirt differently. Like, what the fuck? You know right. it's make-believe. Yeah. But we were just tribal like that. Yeah. So it's evolution. So what is it that allows us to be so evenly parsed into these groups? Well, left and right is the, the basic thing that a tribe needs is you need some people that are um, all about compassion so that we don't leave people behind, that we have cohesion, we're looking out for each other, there's mm -hmm. reciprocity. But then you have, if you look at that on um, 
on a large enough sample, what you find is then you get the freeloader problem. So if we were all compassionate, you get freeloaders who sure. go, oh word, I'm in a, there's an evolutionary niche for just taking advantage of people. It's like the, the, um, the cuckoo bird, yeah. which is where you get the idea of a cuckold from, right? Cuckoo bird's like, oh word, I can drop off my egg in your nest and you'll raise it and feed it and all that stuff? Amazing. I did I'm not in. know that's where yeah. the idea of a cuckold came 100%. from. hundred percent. No kidding. Yep. So you always run into the freeloader problem. So the other side of the equation has to be people that go, no, personal responsibility is everything. Now what you get is a group that works because you get people who are like, yo, you cannot just leave people behind. You can't be tyrannical and not think about people. You've got to love them and like, you know, worry about them and lift them up. And you've got other people that are like, hey, you can't fucking take advantage. You've got to pick yourself up and you've got to like really, a, a group only becomes strong as the weakest link. And so we've all got to rise up. Now, when you bring them together, they're high functioning because it's in the friction between the two where it's like, this half knows, okay, I need to like find concessions where it's going to work. And then this half is like, okay, we've got to find, we really should look out for people. And when they are working well, then we thrive. But now the algorithm is pulling us down into these, what's called peak shift. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of this stuff out loud. So everyone's going to have to bear with me if a week from now I think very differently. But this feels right to me. So there's this idea of peak shift where if you take, there's this bird that the mother has a big fucking red nose, beak. And when the bird sees that big red beak, it goes crazy. And there was a research scientist that was like, is it responding to the size of the beak, to the fact that it's red? Like what actually makes it go, mom, like I'm gonna go into my feeding frenzy. Yeah. What they found was the brighter, you could make an artificial one, and the brighter you made the red, the bigger you made the beak, the crazier the chicks went. And they just like went berserk. They called that peak shift. So the algorithm's all about peak shift. Oh, you like that? Then you really like this. You like that? Then you really like this. And you begin to dopamine habituate. And so it just like, ah, it goes crazy. People are in there scrolling all day. You get one narrative. It takes you down this one path. You're not seeking disconfirming evidence. You get tied into these influencers. And if I can really put something that's hit me recently, if you're feeling overwhelmed, I guarantee there's a study on this even though I don't know it, but I have felt this, so I know it must be true. If you're feeling overwhelmed and someone tells you hate that person, it feels awesome because mm -hmm. it's certainty. Oh, I know exactly what to do. Hate that motherfucker. They're wrong. I'm right. That feels awesome. I agree. People are intoxicated by certainty. So you just gave me certainty com combined with all those other things. And so now it's like, even if there isn't a they, and this is just spontaneously evolved, we're living in this fucking moment. And so this is happening. This is real. And shit is getting weird. It and is. for the first time in my life, I'm paranoid. I'm like, not literally yeah. paranoid, but I'm like, oh, like I'm worried. I'm worried that things go to bloodshed. That's my actual concern. How does a paranoid Tom Bilyeu prepare? Because I think I'm a bit extremist, so I can't trust myself. And I, I, I'm selling. This is good everything. for your audience and for me. I'm selling everything. I don't want to be tied to anything. Massive mobility. Read Ray Dalio. He he wrote a book called Principles for Dealing yeah, with the Changing book, World Order, and book. he said you need to be mobile. You need to be able to go basically wherever stability is. Um, I've heard you talk about this, so I know you know the concept. Get off the X. Yeah. I don't know where the X is gonna be, but I know that I own a lot of real estate and I probably shouldn't. So that's 
move number one. Now, I don't think I'm the guy people should listen to. I'm fucking fumbling my way through this. I just want to make movies. Yeah. I was just curious what your move was. But that that's where... Yeah. I think mobility is key. Down. Like my, my personal feeling and opinion is that liquidity and mobility is key. Yep. Today more than ever. Like I, all everyone who's stockpiling like guns and weapons and like making that underground bunker, mm. like... I haven't gone that far. I think it's yet. quite the opposite. Like, like, that's all great. What do you mean it's the opposite? The, I think the vision that most people have is when they come to take my property or to mm. take my shit, to rape and pillage, like I will, me and my wife will defend, you know, our canned food and our gold and our, yeah. with our guns and ammo. Mm. Eh, not really. First of all, I think statistically less than like 99% of people have any training with their weapons, number one. Number two, most people are ill-prepared if that were the, the apocalypse shit hit the fan thing was going to happen. And because I actually studied what these the guys like uh, John Lovell, Warrior Poet Society, and others like them who have been actual true warriors, like they don't think about hunkering down. They're all about liquidity and mobility, like very intelligent warriors who understand that I've got to be liquid and mobile because I don't know where yeah. The, the X is going to be, but I know I won't be on it. And the resource that helps is obviously money, right? Yeah, and I hope, man, I hope I'm just being paranoid and that, ah, it's Nothing wrong good, with healthy paranoia. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's when it keeps you up at night. It's when you begin, I believe there's a tipping point to anything. Like well, my dad was taking uh, whatever, like two baby aspirin a day. Mm. His heart's doing just fine. I bet if he took a handful a day, it'd probably burn a hole in his stomach. It's, it's the, when we hit the tipping point, which goes back to your social media example, that the algorithm sucks us down this hole, this rabbit hole so accurately and gets us to believe that this is truly the reality. And if we are not looking for the contrary, actively looking for it, we will begin to believe that this is a shit that hits the fan moment and I must, I must prepare. And what pre preparation looks like for one guy may be very different than the other. No doubt. Yeah. You were born in Soviet-controlled Armenia. <laughs> yes, sir. How has that informed the what you're telling your kids about this moment? Might be the most interesting way to ask that. As you were talking about, see, this is why I like hanging out with you. This is the most selfish thing I do. Like, like whether it's food with you or just this, it's like I do realize that when you've grown up under communist control. And then when your dad was a member of the Communist Party, and so he kind of tells you, you grew up hearing the stories. So seeing it and then hearing the stories, it does influence you. And the way you think, like, well, shoot, that government did that. Like, they literally went to oppress the citizens. Like, there was just different classes. My dad was part of the 18% of the society in the Soviet Union who had a, uh, this different colored dark red passport. And I remember he'd be able to get bread and cheese from any store that he wanted uh, when they were out and there were lines. Me and my mom would have to wait in lines until my dad became a member of the Communist Party and we never once waited in the line again. Wow. In fact, I grew up eating caviar. We talked about this in your, in your previous uh, show, the last time you interviewed me. I was eating caviar in Armenia uh, for breakfast and then come here and I'm eating like out of dumpsters and Section 8 housing. So talk so about it. But that government did oppress its people. And so I do realize that I look through life through those lens at mm -hmm. times. And so hearing you talk about like, hey, what if this is just like, it's really good algorithm doing what it's supposed to do. Oh shit, what if? All right, so okay, I'm a little less paranoia, cool. 
uh, more preparation, yeah, and then just live your life, and just live your life. Um, but, but it just breaks my heart when I see, dude, when I see people this far apart, like our, our country, humanity has never been this far apart, and, and maybe we need it, we need to go so far apart where we feel the pain and then get back together again. Um, and maybe it's that I'm 48 years old and I've got more gray than I've ever had and, and, I, and I'm realizing that I've, ha I've had a really good life experience and worried from what my kids are going to have as a life experience. Like, what's going to happen for them and their kids? Like, I want to, I can't wait to hold Andrew and Chloe's babies, but I also know I'm going to be like, fuck, what's life going to look for, like for them? So I'm so hell-bent on trying to influence society, humanity, in what I feel is a better way. And I know it's, you know, hindsight's always 2020 and things always are more glamorous when you look back, but how simple was it for us, dude, growing up in the 80s and 90s? You know, like, all right, so you got your Walkman, you got your CD player, your, like, th th there was no fentanyl to, to overdose on. Mm -hmm. There was, I, I just I will like say though, I was legitimately afraid of nuclear war. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. I, I do recall that. I, took, I was... Yeah. Really, yeah. I mean, that was like a thing. And I was right yeah. at that age where my amygdala was just 80% of my brain. During the Cold War? Yeah. 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 And it was like, hey, this mutually assured destruction. I remember having to explain that to my neighbors. Oh, no, no, the reason they won't launch nuclear missiles is yeah. because of mutually assured destruction. That's, that's rough. Yeah. So it, I do remind myself of that. Like, okay, have we been this divided before? Probably, I mean, we're at civil war, like literal guns being fired, civil war, people being killed. So it's like we have gone through things like this and people rebound and we're super resilient, but I don't think it happens by accident. And so it's like, how do we, you know, nudge each other back in a loving direction is how I think about it. Mm -hmm. um, but how do we? I think it comes with the individual. And I think that's where it comes. When we try and change a whole party's ideology and belief system, it's not going to work. It's going to be the individual. Like the individual watching this, listening to this right now and going, shoot, they had two different ideas on, on maybe the rules of life and how things work. But then they kind of agreed that there is this radiance within us, whether it's we're born with it or we have to turn it on and then stoke that fire. Um, yeah, I, I, could, I could buy into the idea of that there's something within us that needs to thrive. So to your point, the right place to start is with yourself, right? So trying to figure out, okay, what do I have wrong? How do I be the open mind that comes to the table to try to you know, find a path forward? 
but I just don't feel like I have wisdom in this. Like Ray Dalio talks a lot about things that have happened in history, but that have not happened in your life. Mm. And mm. the things that are going on right now have happened in history, but they haven't happened in my life. And because I'm so experiential, like for whatever reason, I've always had to learn things the hard way. And so, yeah, I don't know that I have any wisdom to impart here, but in my, I find it very fascinating and I really want to understand what's happening. Like what is this revealing about human nature? I don't think we can ever count on the algorithm to do anything other than maximize um, what humans respond to. And unfortunately we respond to um, certainty extraordinarily strongly, which is the opposite of an open mind. Uh, we respond to fear a lot more than the flip side. It's going to be a lot harder to have a good news show than it is to have a bad news show, right? If it bleeds, it leads. God. And so all of these things are real. So it's like, okay, I know all of these things are real. What can I do? Like, do you have advice? I know you do. I know the punchline to this. But like, what's your advice to people on social media? Like, how do you deal with it? How do you make it a part of your life? Do you not make it a part of your life? I do. It's a, it's a very big part of my life. Uh, but I, I divide social media people into two, two camps, consumers and creators. And I believe that you're better off being a 90% creator, 10% consumer. And that's what I am. And I create content that the 1.0 version of me would want because I've been able to take myself from 1.0 to 2.0. Mm -hmm. And if 10.0 is my goal, then when I get to 3.0, I'll create content for the 1.0 and 2.0 version of myself. And if I feel like that, that's what you've done, I, to see your evolution over the last four or five years. I, I, I feel like you are coaching the younger Tom, Toms who, were, who are like Tom 1.0 out there in society. Um, it's, it, ain't, it ain't rocket science that social media is a business and it is there to stoke fear, create a level of certainty, and also it stokes uncertainty so that we can be attracted to those that, that speak in certainty. Mm. That's what's beautiful about social media. When you just look back at, at the hell that social media is, it creates uncertainty. And it's like, well, people, are like, what do you mean? Well, let's face it, social media has probably caused a lot of kids to kill themselves. Like some kids have like yeah. been bullied, been, been felt like they don't belong, fear of missing out, right? It's created this uncertainty within them. And they felt that, that certainly the solution to this is death. Yeah. Um, and so we do have to see how powerful this thing is. Like anyone would be stupid to not look at Hitler or Bin Laden and, and not realize there's something to take away from there. That the, those, those evil powers did have a great way of communicating that perhaps if we can learn that, put it to good use, that maybe we can do create good outcomes with it. Uh, so my belief system on social media is to be a creator of content that the older version of you would benefit from and would help those people level up to the higher version of you. And if we all did more of that and consumed less of it, um, we'd be less influenced by it. But I also realize like there's literally like variable response, the whole idea of this, like it's a casino thing, right? Like you pull the slot machine, mm -hmm. do am I gonna get the three cherries if I do I'm a winner? Shit, I only got two cherries. That was close. Let me try again with another $20 bill. Variable response. So variable response works on pumping out dopamine like no one's business, bro. They figured out how to get this thing, our brain, to pump out the right addictive chemicals so well that you do, goes back to routine, goes back to morning ritual, 
Rules and rituals, I believe, will save someone from going down the social media depression, anxiety, time suck vacuum that it really is. Yeah. Because uh, I've got rules and rituals about it. Like, I won't like more than three things, right? So mm -hmm. if, like, you and Lisa and my friend Craig pop up and my first, I'll, I'll, I'll like you three, that's it. If I just keep going, I'm now starting to suck through the variable response funnel and now I'm going to keep liking and liking. I will literally just go through all my friend's shit and it'll show me stuff from yours like six weeks ago. Like, there's no end to it. So I've, I create rules and rituals. And when I have rules and rituals, and also I know I'm, I have, I'm an addictive person. Um, and I think most of us are, man. Um, that's why we're so easily to get addicted to social media. I'm an addictive person, and so I know that I'm more susceptible to, to getting addicted to that pattern. And that pattern could, and then I'm also OCD, so everything I do is obsessive. That's a bad combination, right? Apparently not for entrepreneurial not success. Not for entrepreneurial success, touche. But in that path, oh my God, man, to get addicted to it and then to mm. go OCD on it, Forget about it. Like this is why, man. I, I could eat a bag of bagels. My wife would be like, "That's like a, a baker's dozen, thirteen bagels, and two things of Philadelphia cream cheese." Like, where did it go? Like, I must finish it all, Tom. I can't leave anything half finished, even bagels. How long would it take you to eat thirteen bagels? Bro, I would stand at the kitchen buffet. Um, Forty-five minutes. No way. I kid you not. I thought you were gonna say four days. No, dude. Whoa. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I have an obsessive mind, but not a, I don't have an addictive personality. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't find myself doing that. If I, I don't like eat one chip and then I'm fine, but I'm like food used to be more of a problem for me. Food is not a problem, but I thrive on rules yeah. to your point. What are some rules and rituals that you have in place? So we know the social media one. What yeah, else? so there's a social media one, uh, uh, you know, going back full circle to a morning routine. Um, the best morning routines, I believe, start in the evening. So some of the rules that I have. Read. Right? Right? Um, no iPhone, no, 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 no. Starting at what time? Uh, for me, at 9 p.m., because I go to bed at 10. Okay. No iPhone, no iPad, no laptop. Hour before bed. Hour before bed. What are you doing? Talking to Diana? We're either watching. Uh, we'll typically watch. Right now, we're watching um, the Bluths. Uh, oh, my God. Where they built. It's a comedy show. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Arrested Development. There we go. We're yep, watching yep. that with the kids. So we'll watch one episode of the Bluths or Arrested Development, and then we'll go in the hot tub. Kids will fuck around in the pool while we go in and the hot tub. And the hot tub, tub is just re relaxation, yeah, talking. That's a rule, too, to relax, talk 20 minutes, 30 minutes while the kids goof off, and then they go in the hot tub with us, and we all get out. They go to bed. We go to bed. 10 o'clock, lights out. Um, that's just how it worked out. But screens off by 9 o'clock in, in terms of computer, laptop, and iPad. We do watch a show, and then going to the hot, hot tub, uh, number one. Number two, bring the 30 ounces of water upstairs with me because if I'm gonna drink 30 ounces of water in the morning, it needs to be on my mm -hmm. nightstand. Otherwise, it might take me 20 minutes to get there if I'm showering and doing all this shit. Right. Um, create my GSD list the night before. I believe taking that stuff out of my brain and putting it on a notepad just allows me to do a brain dump. And I always yeah. put the hardest, scariest thing that I'm gonna do tomorrow morning, the thing I wanna avoid, at the top of my GSD yep. list, right? It's common sense. And it's not swirling around in my head and my subconscious mind is keeping me awake thinking about it. It's on a list of three to four things to do, the worst one at the top of that list. And so, again, that's another one of my evening rituals. And then I'll set my alarm and, and, and lights out, off I go. Um, but, but some other rules are that if there's people who always, and uh, I've, to date I've got 119 people blocked on my phone, some friends, some clients, former clients, I guess I should say, some just 
people who were friends, but it's the people that go, hey, Tom, did you see this article about your brand, your company, your thing? Mm. And it's always negative. The ones that always do you, like, motherfucker, did you hear that I was on the Inc. magazine? Did you hear that I was in Entrepreneur Magazine's top 500 fast-growing franchises? I didn't see you text me the link to that. Right. But you hear that somebody died at a Fit Body boot camp? It's a gym. People do die at a Fit Body right. boot camp. You know, all of a sudden you're sending me, did you hear that somewhere in Tallahassee, Florida, somebody died at a Fit Body boot camp? Thank you. I'm aware of that. Mm. Right? And so people who are just so quick to show up with negative news, especially via text, I just block them. Like, I'll see a pattern. I don't tell them or whatever. Like, hey, I'm going to block right. you. you got to not do that. But if I see someone's got that pattern in my life, they are addicted to causing drama. I don't need that. So that's one of my main rules as well of, of blocking them on my phone. Uh, at which point, they could just call the house line and talk to Marlon, my house manager, and not me. Uh, at which point, she'll leave a little notepad note, and that's that. But those are my big major rules. And then, But mostly on social media, create 90%, consume 10%. Mm. Yeah, rules, man. I think that this is one of the most underutilized things for people that want to be successful. You really, you have to one, identify what are the things that I struggle with? What are rules that I can put in place? For me, the biggest one, and I know we've talked about this before, is I have to be out of bed in 10 minutes or less because otherwise I will lose hours, man. It's mm. crazy. Like I am still shocked. I, when it comes to laying in bed, I'm like an alcoholic. It's like no matter how many years go by that I don't do it, I still every day want huh. to do it it's super weird and i just find myself wanting to to lay in bed how do you like and maybe you feel like you've always had this but how do you teach other people to be a savage you talk about being a servant savage and the need to be capable of that savagery yeah, yeah. one do you mean savage literally or do you just mean being tough like how do you think about that both both I'm sure you would jump to my throat and like attempt to kill me and probably kill me if I even made any attempt to attack Lisa. Like you need to be a savage, yeah. right? But you're also a savage in creating your your, your businesses and, 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 and the impact theory show. Um, a savage in like, doesn't matter how you feel. You're up doing your show, you're up doing your ritual, you're up stacking your wins. It might be walking like molasses during days that you're not, maybe you didn't sleep well or having an off day, but you're still savagely going through your day. So savage in both ways. I do believe that, that those who are skilled in the art of violence are least likely to become violent. And I've known That's this- That's really interesting. Why do you say that? Because of my experience as a kid. See, growing up in Section 8 housing, uh, so so in, in Russia, judo and sambo are some martial arts that were really big in the Soviet Union. So my dad taught me that very quickly, judo, sambo. And then as soon as I became uh, 11 years old, he put me into kempo karate, kicking and, and punching. And this is pre-jujitsu era. Uh, and growing up in Section 8 housing. So I'm the foreigner. Imagine me, the foreigner kid with the funny bull haircut and the clothes that my mom made in Section 8 housing. And and uh, in Santa Ana, there was a gang called F Troop. They're still out there causing violence. Uh, but my dad had bought me a little bike, like from a garage sale, for like eight bucks or something. Dude. It was like rusty, and but it mm. worked, right? And then these gangbangers stole it. And they lived in the same complex in the neighboring complex. They stole it. I went, I went home kind of crying, like, hey, this is what happened. My dad gave me a beating, because that's what a communist dad does. And when I told that to Kevin, by the way, my therapist, he's like, hey, anything ever happened to you as a kid? Like, do you want to talk about? Because he helped me with my stress mm -hmm. and anxiety and all that stuff, right? That was the reason I went to a therapist. I was like, no, man, like, no, there's nothing as a kid that I want to talk about. Like, okay, my, he goes, well, what about your parents? He goes, well, 
What about your parents? Like, well, my parents, you know, my mom spanked me, my dad gave me a beating, but I would have rather had those beatings and spankings than like all my other friends that were put on restriction for two weeks. They can come out and play with their GI Joes with me. Like they really had to like pay the price. I just got a good beating and I can go out and play again, Kevin. And he's laughing. He goes, that didn't leave a scar on you? I'm like, nah. I go, plus what happened to me as a kid even before that was even worse. But that's where I had enough, I had apparently built enough rapport and trust with him where I hinted to what had happened to me, hence being molested. Right. And that's how we, what was supposed to be one month of therapy ended up being 15, 16 months. Because then we started working on what happened to me as a kid. But anyway, going back to the savage and a servant. What I found was that when my dad was, he, he beat me and he goes, if you don't come back with your bike, the beatings will continue. Whoa. Because that was a lot of money he spent. Mm. Eight bucks for having three, four jobs, living in Section 8 housing. And that eight bucks can go towards food and water and all this other stuff that he put towards a bike. Give me a flathead screwdriver. And he's like, go get the bike. I didn't have to ask him what I do with the flathead screwdriver. Wow. And so it was simple enough that the more violence I could cause, the more compliant they became. Were you a big kid? I, I was a bigger kid, yeah. I was a, I was a stocky mm. kid. And my two friends in America were, my first friends in America were, were black, Section 8 housing. It's either Mexicans, black kids, or foreigners. Dwayne and Torrance. Torrance I found, uh, and when we stay in touch, Torrance Jackson in Anaheim. Uh, Dwayne, I have no idea, but he lived in apartment number 22 at the Shade Tree Apartments. God, I still remember that. We played snake in the grass together and all this. So them two had my back, and we went and got my bike. And it didn't even have to take any use of the flathead screwdriver to get my bike back because they understood why we were there. And, mm -hmm. and, and so, but I realized in that moment that like, all right, sometimes violence is, is the way. But I also understood that violence could work against me when a whole bunch of them showed up and whooped my ass uh, many years later, put me in the hospital. Um, all this to, to, to tell you that you begin to, and, and now, man, doesn't matter how big someone is, how wiry someone is, how muscular someone is, someone knows jujitsu or they've taken yeah. the, you know, a, a few months of, of Muay Thai kickboxing, like they will just like meatloaf your face right in or just take, take the air out of your brain and you're, you're, you're passed out. And so today people are more dangerous than ever. And when you realize that, I don't know, what do they say in Texas? Like an armed society is a polite society? Well, mm. technically most people these days with the knowledge of violence that they have um, I just want to treat everyone as though you know jujitsu, right. you know kickboxing, you might have a flathead screwdriver in your back pocket, and therefore I'm going to be cool to you. So I'm going to be a servant. But I love knowing that I could show up as a savage, knowing that I don't really pull that card out unless I have to. Um, and the savage is also the guy or gal who's willing to, they see a car accident, everyone else is rubbernecking and you know taking video. Like that savage is someone who's running to that car, breaking the glass window and pulling out the people out of it, right? They're willing to stand in the gap between good and evil. Um, I don't know if I shared this with you on your show last time I was here. My family and I, we do our annual trip to Maui right around Christmas. It's just something that we, we enjoyed Hawaii when we got married for our honeymoon. So we decided to do an annual trip with the kids. Um, several years back, Andrew was probably six, Chloe was four. We're flying back. It's one of the from Maui, we took an 11 p.m. flight back from Maui to LAX, and uh, it's those big jumbo jets where there's like the lay-down seats up front, like in the in the middle and on the sides, and so we're in the very back of first class. We all have our fun seats, 
And then, but way up front in first class, there's a dude going off, like smashing the seat. I didn't tell you the story? No. Okay, so he's smashing, the, dude, we're up at like 35,000 feet up in the air. We're over the Pacific Ocean, bro. Uh-huh. Like he, he should have done this on the tarmac where they could have removed him. Yeah. He's smashing the seat back in front of him. And now the dude's like, dude, bro, relax, what's going on? And he's just like foaming at the mouth, going bananas. People have gotten up and kind of gotten into that galley where they make your coffee and all that stuff. And uh, I look at my wife, next to her is Chloe, across the aisle, my wife and Chloe, and next to me is Andrew. Andrew looks at me, I'm like, buddy, everything's gonna be okay. I look at my wife, she looks at me, I just like, hey, we're gonna be fine. Chloe's knocked out, sleeping. I look at the guy behind my wife, He's, he's now sitting this thing up, right? And we made this eye contact, like no words were spoken. No words were spoken, Tom. But I just knew he had my back and I know he knew that I had mm. his back. Now I'm thinking this is post 9-11. Something happens, like we're all gonna dogpile on this yeah, bad guy, yeah. right? Because no one's gonna die. Because you're not landing this thing in the water. So <laughs> you gotta make sure this guy just goes down. So anyway, long story short, we see the flight attendants go all the way to the back. They're coming down our end of the aisle. Their plan is to cut through the galley to create a wall between angry, ballistic, mad guy making the gun gesture and hitting everyone's seat. They're trying to make a human wall between him and the cockpit. Got it. So as they're coming down, I see two interlaced black handcuffs, those uh, zip ties. Mm. And I like stop the flight attendant. I'm like, ma'am, is everything okay? How can we help? Like she goes, he's a flight risk. We need to ask him to put these on. And I, I'm like, well, can we help? And she goes, we have to ask him to put these on. I guess the law is... They have to ask you, Tom. So the next time, if you decide to lose your shit on the plane. Um, he has to agree? He has to agree. Interesting. So they cut in front of him, three flight attendants, and you can see this older lady flight attendant gesturing like, you gotta put this on. He stands up, he's like, I'm not putting those fucking things on. She looks up towards me and like, help! I look at this guy just through the corner of my eye and I see him standing up and we both, I had just finished. Remember I told you I did the six week uh, marathon challenge? Mm. I just, since then I've been doing like about two challenges a year. I just finished an MMA challenge. Nice. Where I was like, all right, man, I want to learn to really fight, right? <laughs> Let's see how this works. Yeah, yeah. with uh, at the time, king of the cage, welterweight champion, Aaron Weatherspoon. Awesome, tiny little guy, tatted up peaceful until he brought me on the mats and he would just have his way with me. But in six weeks, he, he taught me some really cool stuff. Um, and then he went in the ring and beat the shit out of me because every six week challenge has to end with either a marathon or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's a different story. So I, we go and that's just me and this guy and I, I, I look at this guy, he's like, what are you gonna do about it? And I was like, bro, just put those things on. Like, just uh, like, be cool, right? I'm wearing flip flops and I got my Hilo Hattie shirt on. It's like fucking, we're coming from Maui, dude. Um, sweating profusely because I'm nervous. He goes to shove me and I did exactly what Aaron Weatherspoon taught. I parried out of the way, got behind him and got him in a rear naked chokehold. <laughs> Tom, I'm not gonna lie to you, bro. I hope Aaron Weatherspoon never sees this video. In the back of your mind, you're like, okay, I'm paying this guy to coach me. So like the times that I got him in an arm bar or a rear naked chokehold or a guillotine, maybe he was just like kind of going with it. You know, he really right. wasn't choking. He just tapped because I'm paying him, right? Dude, it worked. So I'm choking this guy out. I'm choking this guy out. I'm on his back. I'm talking in his ear like, dude, just calm down. Now he's bucking like a Bronco. I'm sliding out of my flip-flops because I'm sweating and I'm wearing flip-flops and he's taller than me, so I'm, I'm like my toes, right? I'm like, that's right, Aaron said, like when that happens, take a deep breath, it'll tighten up more. And then he started to like crumple over. Tom, Jesus. it's working. He's on his knees, I'm on his back. Now I'm like, shit. Now the one dude who's here to help me, he's trying to wedge, 
He's trying to wedge the uh, zip ties between my gut and his back and bring his arms back and it's not mm. working. I'm like, okay, what would Aaron do? I quickly got him in a guillotine chokehold. You know, the old elementary school, get a kid in yeah. a chokehold and walk him around the campus thing. That would happen to me all the time because I'd get bullied, right? So, dude, I flipped around and got him in a guillotine and it worked. And this guy zip ties him. He zip tied really too tight and so the zip tie cut into him. So we had to re-zip tie him. That's a different story. But anyway, flight attendants made us sit in the back with him. We take turns. Jesus. Yeah, we got all the hummus and wine you could drink and eat uh, on the flight. And then we landed in LAX. LAPD took him away. And that was that. But all this to say wow. that, thank God that my dad had instilled this savage mindset in me. Mm. Like, you have to be the one that does something, son. You can't just be the one that goes, hey, someone should do something about that. Mm. And so that's always been my mindset is if I have to cross my arms and go, someone should do something about that, maybe I should be the one. Maybe I should be the one funding that movement. Maybe I should be the one saving that person out of the fire or saving that flight, whatever the thing is. And so I've always, but I also want to show up as a servant and love you up and, and how much value can I add to your life and what can I do to connect? And because I also realize I'm a big commanding guy and so I could come off as a threat. So look, I see a ping pong table. Everybody, let's play ping pong, you know? Uh, plus I enjoy it. Um, so anyway, that's, I believe the more savage servants we can build, the more confident, capable protectors and providers we will have, men will finally feel that they have this role in their life. They're, every guy feels like, they, they want to have conflict. Mm. Like we have this thing called the project. It's a 75 hour men's personal development program, um, but it's 75 hours straight. So my lead instructor for it, Ray, is a former Navy SEAL. Uh, then we have the psycho sociopathic form, uh, Marine. I've learned not to say former Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine, apparently. Uh, then there's me teaching life productivity, time management, uh, building businesses, because they're all entrepreneurs that come to this thing. MMA fighter. Uh, former SWAT operator, teaches pistols and rifle stuff. And so we really teach, 90% of these guys, when the Marine asks, how many of you motherfuckers have never hit another man before? 90% of the hands go up. How many of you have ever choked out another man? 90% uh, have never choked out another man, hands go up. And so realize, yet they still have the desire. You're a man, you have this desire to be aggressive, to, mm. to have some level of conflict, to be able to like, Ugh! but you can't because society has neutered us so much. And so there, we teach these guys to be violent, but to also learn how to control their violence so that they're not, because otherwise, when you never show your violence and your savage within, you become a passive aggressive man. Mm -hmm. And that is where toxic masculinity begins. The passive aggressive man, the nice guy syndrome, there's a great book out there called No More Mr. Nice Guy, that's the passive aggressive man that's, you know, toxic masculinity is the passive aggressive man who will yell at his wife and put his fist through a wall at home where it's safe, but where when he's supposed to stand in the gap or raise his voice in a situation where the opportunity of right and wrong are presented or jump out of his seat and choke a motherfucker out, he won't do that. He won't do that because he's not really sure if I can. I know I could probably yell at my wife and my kids and scare them well, here's your chance to fight with a pugil stick. Here's your chance to wrestle a guy. Here's your chance. And when they do, they realize, oh, you know what? First of all, I could take a punch. Secondly, I know what it feels like to get choked out and choke another man out. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I am going to go learn this thing on my own, jujitsu or Muay Thai. And every single one of them report back that they're more peaceful, that they have less stress because you're on the mat two to three times a week or in the ring getting after it. I literally have zero stress, bro. 
like because of it in terms of like where I want to like rage out and kill someone because I'm like somebody else might try and kill me. Like I'm just gonna be cool. This is very interesting to me because it's the very thing that I know uh, I have not focused on in my life and ought to. But the first time that somebody put it on my radar was Frost Zahabi, who was the, I don't know if he was the all-around MMA coach of George St. Pierre, but certainly the uh, jiu-jitsu coach for George St. Pierre. And I had him on the show in the early, early days. Yeah. And he said, Tom, I want to choose kindness. I don't want kindness to be my only option. And I was like, damn, very good point. And then Jordan Peterson has started talking about this recently where he looked at the phrase from the Bible, the meek shall inherit the earth. I have to admit, this always bothered me because I always interpreted meek as weak. So I was like, why would the weak inherit the earth? It doesn't make sense. Like, I know that it isn't true. And so how does that, like, the Bible believe it as a literal thing or not, it's got wisdom that's obviously lasted for a reason. Sure. So I was like, ah, why does that resonate? So Jordan Peterson, whether he's right or not, it's another question, but this feels right looks up, I think, the ancient Greek translation of meek, and it means to basically to be good with a sword but keep it sheathed. Mm. And so there's a reason they didn't say the weak shall inherit the earth, but when you are a competent fighter, then you can choose combat or you can choose not to, but there's no internal conflict, there's no uh, nervous aggressive like a chihuahua that's like barking and freaking out because it feels like it has to act big and tough because if, if it can't get you to back down and it actually goes to blows, now it's gonna be in trouble because it doesn't actually know how to fight. Bingo. Or just paralyzed, like you said, and they're, they just stay because they're you know, afraid that they won't be able to do anything. And I do feel that that is one that, as guys, you do have that impulse that you get in an elevator and you think, could I take this guy? Right. Like even in business, like it still does run across your mind. Yeah. And so to not address it, I think does it, to, to not have that tool in your arsenal just robs you of one more thing, but also it sets up what you're talking about where you've got people who are, like guys are gonna try to get laid, full stop, period, end of story, it just is what it is. And so if you don't have that confidence, you don't feel like you can be manly and sort of win over a woman's heart by being the sort of, prototypical tough guy, not even tough guy, but like to, to have that, man. yeah, a dangerous yeah. man, but but meek in the, mm -hmm. that you're weaponized, but you keep your weapon yeah. uh, hidden, then you go for the nice guy tactic. Oh, the, the subtlety, the more feminine way of being sly, where it's reputational, oh, he's not the right guy for you anyway, like right. they, you know, they slide in that way. There's a whole strategy that in the animal kingdom, there are actually like frogs that do this. I think there are other ones as well where there is a legitimate male strategy where they try to look like a female. And so they, they can bypass the dominant male and they can wow. mate. It's crazy. So it's, uh, it is, a, I fear, a strategy that, that guys are tempted to deploy but it isn't a, a confident, grounded, expansive strategy. It's a, a sort of shifty, like yeah. secretive, desperate. like, yeah. it, it's a desperate attempt. It's not a good energy. When that's your only tool, you have to make that tool as useful as possible. And so, and, and a lot of dudes end up in, in the nice guy 
friend category. It's like, mm. hey, how'd you, how'd you become a friend? You were trying to get laid and now you're a friend. Uh, there was a comedian, I forget the comedian, he goes, he goes all those people that you just described, those guys, they're the dick in the jar now. Because then when that girl gets a boyfriend, mm. as in, soon as there's a conflict with the boyfriend and she goes, I hate him, I'm thinking of breaking up, that's mm. the guy who goes, it's like in case of emergency, break glass. Right. You know what? Yeah, he is a bad guy. He is a dick. Maybe, maybe you sh- hoping that if sh- he just right. also pisses on the boyfriend, that he can get laid for the night. Yep. Like that's not a cool way to do it. But if that guy also had the tools of confidence and he was capable and he knows how to protect, but he also knows how to stay cool like Fonzie, because there's no good. Even in the best fight where you win, mm. you still get hit. I've been stabbed. Whoa. I've been. St- I've got a giant scar on my calf. Like the guy went How down, I hit him. in your calf? Because when you hit him and you're like, I'm done. And then he pulls out a knife and just slices your calf. Oh. That's how you get stabbed in your calf. So even in your best fights, you still get hit right. in the process of trying to win. And so, but see again, if someone's been on the mats before, they've been in a ring before, mm-hmm. they've been in a fight before, you realize like, okay, it's gonna hurt. <laughs> it's gonna hurt me even when I win. Right. Can I now try and talk my way out of this? Can I be cool? If I have to, I can always resort to that, but can I be cool? But if, but if that shifty, desperate, I'm the, I'm the beta, you're the alpha thing is the only tool I got, I don't, I don't want that, dude. I don't want that desperate thing because what if I'm with my family and you decide not to have mercy on me and mm-hmm. I can't plead my way out of this? I wanna be able to like get both thumbs in your eye holes as quickly as possible, right? That's just a reality. We all, like you said it, man, we go in the elevator, we start like sizing people up. That's just how it is. I don't know about you, but I've got such a predator's mind that I'll be in in a grocery store and I'll see like a woman with a purse and she's like looking at something. I'm like, I could steal that purse right now. (laughs) I see a guy who's like in his car and he's got his door open, but he's got his head in, his ass is sticking out, I'm like, that five series BMW could be mine right now. Mm. Like I know exactly what I would do to like pull him out of his car and take that car so quick. Like I do believe that every man has a predator's mind. It's in our, it's just the way we're wired. But I also have experienced a lot, a lot of violence where I've had my ass whooped where I'm like, that dude could also have a concealed carry permit as I'm pulling him, whack. That also, that dude could also grab a knife and slice because I've been sliced before, right? And so, and I would never do that these days, right? Like the old me, I've carjacked and home invasion robberies, but the the new me like realizes that there's people, the great mighty equalizer is the gun, the knife, or multiple people. And if you get past all those, then there's a universal uh, karmic justice that always has to take place mm-hmm. to balance out, you know, you being an asshole means your kid gets cancer. Interesting. I believe in that too. That, that, that my sins will be paid for by my kids and so I have to add so much value, bro, to make up for all of those fucking years of being an asshole. It's a useful way to look at it, even if it's not literally true. Where can people follow you? Uh, best place to follow me is on Instagram, at Bedros Koulian. I love it. Guys, follow him. He's absolutely incredible. He's right about an incredible amount of things. And speaking of incredible things, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.